All right, here's the really exciting news. We're finishing Nehemiah this morning. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> okay. So turn in your Bibles, Nehemiah 13. Uh, we're going to read the passage in just a little bit. We're going to talk about this uh, this morning. This is Restore is the name of our sermon series. We are coming up to the final Sunday. And as much as I have loved living in the Old Testament for the past few months, uh, it's good to be finished with it, right? If you read ahead this week, if you read chapter 13, it might have left you scratching your head a little bit, right? That's why the name of the message this morning is, We Need a Happily Ever After. Because it's not necessarily uh, happy here in chapter 13. And Nehemiah has been a fun ride, uh, but with all great roller coasters. See, I love roller coasters. Uh, I love a good ride. I love going up and down. But all great roller coasters have to come to an end, right? The book of Nehemiah has kind of been one of those roller coaster rides uh, throughout seeing Israel's history unfold here as they build uh, the walls. And so it's coming to an end. And what a great way to end. Uh, We see the passage kind of culminating in the last few weeks. They've built the walls together. They've come together. They've heard God's word. Uh, They've rededicated themselves to God's law. And we know that everything just kind of goes off without a hitch for the rest of their history, right? They obey God perfectly, don't they? No. Man, we're wrong with that one. You see, because we all long for a happily ever after. And this seems like a great place to have one in this passage in Nehemiah 13 as this book closes out that they lived happily ever after, but we know and we'll find out this morning as we unpack this passage uh, that they didn't. They didn't obey God. But to me, it's the beauty of Scripture. That it's not sugar-coated. It is God's truth. It's the beauty of God speaking to us in our time, and us being able to relate to saying, man, I understand what they're going through, because sometimes I'm disobedient also. And we can relate to what the Israelites were going through. The truth of the matter is, is that we'll find out in a few minutes that Israel does go back to their old ways of disobeying God. You see, Nehemiah has left the scene. As we approach chapter 13, uh, just a little bit of background here. Nehemiah has left. He's gone back to serve King Artaxerxes. He's back in the king's court. He is the king's cupbearer. So he's back there. He has seemingly set everything right. He's led according to the word of God. Completed his God-given task. But once again now, he's coming back. That's what chapter 13 is. So he has left. He's gone back into the court of Artaxerxes to serve him. But then he finds out that things are not going so well in Jerusalem. So now he's coming back again. He has to return to Jerusalem to straighten things out. And he faces four issues this morning, if you want to look to your notes. Four issues that he comes across... And the people of God, after God has so richly blessed them, after God has brought them out of slavery, has brought them back to Jerusalem, God has protected them against their enemies, God has unified them under incredible leadership, leadership under Nehemiah and Ezra, and yet there's four issues now that Nehemiah has to come back in. He's got to clean up the mess. He's got to get out the mop and broom and and clean things up in God's house because once again... God's people have messed things up. And so the first issue that he faces is compromise. Compromise within the people of God. 
compromise within the culture around them. And we find this if you look uh, to your Bibles this morning, Nehemiah 13, 4-9. It says, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Do you guys remember that name? Does anybody in here remember that name? You go back a couple chapters and learn a little bit about Tobiah is not a good guy. Tobiah has been against God's people. Tobiah is kind of a snake. He's kind of a slimy guy. And he has wormed his way back in to the story here. So it says that this man, Eliashib, was, was close with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the, to the king, Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. This kind of reminds me of the commercials or the stories you see where the wife comes home and finds the cheating husband. And then the next scene you see the clothes and the furniture come flying out the window. We have Nehemiah here. He's found that Israel is is cheating on their husband and he's in the storeroom and he's clearing it out. Get your stuff out of my house. Clear it out. What a slap in the face. Again, if you recall, Tobiah had had made a mockery of Nehemiah and the Israelites. Tobiah was an Ammonite. He is likely a person who would have acknowledged the God of Israel, but his actions were anything but supportive of the people of God. He may outwardly appear to be a friend of God's people, but in fact he was a foe of the people because he was leading the people astray. Here's what we call those in the New Testament. He was a wolf. He was a wolf among the people. He appeared to be with them, but he was not. His slippery and slimy ways once again are presented here. He has wormed his way back into utilizing sacred space for his own benefit. Aren't you glad that there aren't people like this anymore in the church? Maybe turn on... (laughs) That's my girl right there, Sharon. (laughs) turn on the TV for a couple seconds on a Sunday and you can see many a person proclaiming God, proclaiming to be with God, and yet are using the Word of God and using the name of Christ. Actually, they may not even speak about Jesus in their churches. But using the name of Christ and compromising with their slippery, slimy ways that is against the Word of God, compromising. And people flock to this. Why do they flock to it? Because it tickles their ears. These men and women tell them what they want to hear. 
tickle my ears. I picture Tobiah being this kind of person. It's that slick guy that comes in, tells you everything you want to hear, everything's good, can I store my stuff here? Can I put it in your space? Can I move in? And pretty soon he's taken over. He's using the church for personal benefit and gain. Without a second thought of this, this is the issue, without a second thought of the glory of God. Tobiah is not a man that is bringing glory to God. That's why he is against God. He's bringing glory to himself because he's using God's people for his purposes. So what does Nehemiah do? He politely rids the storeroom of all of Tobiah's belongings. And then I love this. He rededicates it to its rightful purpose. He purifies that room. We're not compromising with these people anymore. Get out. Now, I want us to be careful because we can take this to an extreme. What I'm not talking about is the skeptic, the person that's searching, the person that's seeking, that is among us, the person that may not know Christ, that is hurting. And so they're coming to this place. We're not saying get out to them. We're saying get out to those who portray themselves as a follower of of Christ, and yet they are a wolf leading God's people astray. And I can promise you this, this is going to sound harsh, as one of the leaders in this church, I will not stand for people coming in and deceiving, being deceptive, leading people astray, being wolves in the people of God, and they will be cast out. They will be dealt with. They will not be allowed to reside here. We will politely remove their belongings and send them on their way. What's the second issue that we face in chapter 13? Carelessness. Carelessness within the people of God. Verses 10 to 13 says this, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. You see, the Levites depended on the people for provision to provide for them so that they could carry out the service of temple worship. They could lead the people. The people were no, were no longer giving the portions assigned to the Levites. So they had to go back to their own fields to provide for their families. Nehemiah says this, So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shilamiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pedaiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. We're seeing within the people of God carelessness. They had become careless. Because they were commanded by God to supply what was necessary in the worship of God to supply the Levites with what was needed, and they had neglected that. The, the interesting thing is, is if we reach the end of chapter 12, I'd encourage you this week to read uh, 44 
to 47, the end of chapter 12, we see God's people lavishing gifts after their rededication. And yet, you know, while the cat's away, the mice will play, the leader leaves, Nehemiah leaves, and then the people of God have diverted back to carelessness. They were willingly, at the end of chapter 12, sacrificing for the cause of the kingdom, giving freely and contributing to the people. But here, years later, generosity has faded. The purpose of God has been placed on the back burner. The Levites are no longer being supplied their portion in order to carry out their work. And the consequence of this is that they left Jerusalem and they had to go back because their families needed to eat. They had no food to feed their families. They needed to go back and work their fields because the people were not providing properly for their office. They weren't being supplied with the portion that they needed. You see, Starbucks, eating out, vacation, won the day as more important causes in which to spend their material blessings over and above the command of God. Everything else in life came first. The giving wasn't taking, taken off the top when they received their blessing, their financial blessing, or their grain, or the wine, or the olive oil, or whatever it was, wasn't taken off the top and given to the Levites. Now those things were used for their own personal gain. And their lives came first before the work of the kingdom. Aren't you glad this doesn't happen anymore? Then the people of God? See how God's word is just so relevant time and time and time again? So they were careless because they didn't plan. You see, because in order to give to the kingdom, we have to plan. It doesn't just magically happen. Like, oh, I had this extra 10% in my budget that I never realized was there, so I'm going to give it to God. But you have to carefully plan for those things because if you're anything like me, like... My budget's all tied up in things I gotta spend money on. I gotta live life. I gotta eat. I have to provide a home. I need a car to commute around. I need gasoline to put into the car. I need to keep my lights on. I'd like to go out for a nice steak dinner every once in a while, right? These things all have to be planned out. But first, we gotta say, God, we need to give you yours. We can't be careless. And here's the bottom line. We get so careless with something that's not even ours. Because here's the bottom line. It's all a blessing from God. And yet we get so careless with what is rightfully... He just asks for a small portion back. That's all he says is just be generous. That's what the New Testament shows us. It's it's even more than 10%. It's generosity. Please live a life of generosity. Don't be careless about that. Number three, what's another thing that we learn? Another issue. We see this issue of commercialism within God's people. Commercialism. Nehemiah thirteen fifteen to 22. Says this, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. 
People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all his calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath, right? Didn't you guys learn your lesson the last hundred times that you've done this? He goes on. When the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. These guys wouldn't back off. They're camping outside the gates. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. He says this, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. The Sabbath command is is defamed within this, within these people. People work about selling their goods and services with no thought to the command of God. God had commanded them to set aside this day. I don't desire to get into the finer points of theology and how the new covenant relates to God's command to maintain the Sabbath. We're not talking about that this morning. But here is the reality. We all know our limitations. We all know our bodies. We all know the weight that we carry in life. And the Sabbath was created for this. Because we need rest. Because we're finite beings. And we need rest. Surprised I didn't get an amen on that one. We need rest. Yes. But rather than rest, money, personal gain, and commercialism won the day. And I'll say this, it continues to win the day in our day. We have so many things in life that we set before our own personal rest and the worship of God. Seeking God out. Taking that time to remove ourselves, to be quiet, to be alone, to be seeking. How many times do we see Jesus, God in the flesh, He is God Himself, What does he do? He goes away from people and he rests. What makes us think, as those who are not God, that we we just don't need to do that? I, I don't need to set aside time to rest. I don't need to observe that God has said to me, Hey bro, relax. You know what part of the Sabbath is too? Is control. We want to control and dictate our schedules. We think that if we just remove ourselves from once, man, the world is going to fall apart. It's actually, in a sense, we're kind of spitting in the face of God when we say, no, God, i got to work. i got to do this because I don't trust that you're going to handle everything. That's what the, 
the Sabbath is, is us saying, God, I trust you in your sovereignty and your plan and my own planning that I'm going to be focused in my work week, but then there's going to be a day in my life that I'm going to set aside and I'm going to say, okay, Lord, this is one, your day and also a day that you have set aside for me so that I can rest. And I would say this too, rest looks different for different people. Okay, rest isn't necessarily vegging out on the couch all day long with a bag of Cheetos watching football. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? (laughs) I may or may not do that this afternoon. Rest sometimes... That is that revitalization. Sometimes it is, man, I just want to go sit out on the lake and sit on the boat and catch some fish. And that's, that's Sabbath to me. And looking around and acknowledging the God who created all those things with His spoken word. Do we take time to seek those things out? Because that can be Sabbath. God, I acknowledge you. Look at this amazing place that you've created. It's funny, when I first moved out here, I went into the Apple store at the Oxmoor Mall because I needed to get uh, my daughter's phone fixed. And the worker in there kind of caught on that we weren't from here. And he's like, where are you from? I said, California. He goes, why in the world did you move out here? <laughs> now, it's April. I said, dude, look around. Have you gone outside in this place? You see, I lived in the middle of the Mojave Desert. They set a record last month because they got a quarter inch of rain for the whole month. Tells you something about the color of things. Sometimes we miss that in our rest. Open your eyes to the glory of God all around you. Paul talks about that in Romans. It speaks to our Creator. The Sabbath also includes us worshiping God, gathering together as the corporate body of Christ to hear God's Word preached, to sing, to hear testimony, to see people baptized, to receive the Lord's Supper, all those things. And yet, oftentimes, it might be the last thing on the schedule. Like, man, if we can squeeze in church, we'll be there, but I don't know. Because starting at 10.50, I just don't know if I'm going to get enough sleep that I can make it by 10.50. Church, this is a means of grace that God has given you to fill you up. I mean, there is nothing like experiencing this morning, standing here playing guitar, and hearing God's people singing. Singing! We could have backed off the microphones and you guys could have let us just fine. Amazing. That's, it's a means of grace that God has given us. Will you set aside time for that? Will you set aside time for rest? You see, the Israelites' view in this passage of God is plain as day here. He wasn't even important enough to set aside a day for worship of Him. And also their own benefit of rest. You see, here's the thing. Three little words. God knows best. God knows best. He knows what's best for us. And yet we rebel and we push back against what He wants for us. What He has commanded for us. Because I think, 
in my little idolatrous brain that what I know is better than what God knows. God knows what's best. Practically, God mandated that we abide by this rule regardless of what day you practice it on. Here's the bottom line. We need to unplug, unwind, search the heart of God, read His Word, and recoup from the busyness of life around us. That's the bottom line. That's what we need to do. You need to rest. And here's the fourth issue that we face here in Nehemiah 13. This issue of, of intermarriage. Intermarriage. I was looking for another C to kind of line up all the C's, but I couldn't find it. There's no C word that I could find that stands for intermarriage. So intermarriage it is. I would have liked to have all those letters lined up, but it didn't work out. Nehemiah, let's look at 13, 23 to 28. It says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. It says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. This is where it gets a little hairy here, guys. Okay, hang on. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joedah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat. Do you guys remember that name? Sanballat, the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. What a finale. We have God's chosen leader becoming enraged, beating other men and pulling out their hair. Uh, I don't condone this behavior, okay? I don't encourage you to do that. There's a cultural context in, where this, in which this passage takes place. I don't encourage Christians to hold others accountable in a violent fashion. But the bottom line here is this, is that it speaks to the lengths that Nehemiah is willing to call sin, sin. It speaks to the lengths that Nehemiah is willing to go to rid God's people of sin. And I want to be very clear, because we can read this passage and be like, man, this is weird. You can't marry foreign women. I don't understand what's going on here. This has nothing to do with some sort of nationalistic superiority. But rather, the idea behind this is that God's people would marry within those of like mind. You see, if you, if you look to the genealogy of Jesus, our Savior, you, there's foreign women in there. It has to do with being God-fearing people. Being like-minded. Connecting this to modern Christians, what do we, we take away from this? Because here's the thing, I'm a Mexican man who is married to a Dutch woman. Have I broken God's law in some sort of way? No, because we are one in Christ. 
Here's the idea. This is the takeaway. We must not unequally yoke ourselves with unbelievers. Hear this. Professing Christians should not and must not. It's not just a suggestion. Marry an unbeliever. Missional dating is not something that the Bible approves of. Our closest relationships, I would, I would take this to a little bit further extent. Our closest relationships, our closest friends, should and must be followers of Christ. We can have friendships with people that are unbelievers, and I strongly encourage that because of evangelism, to see people brought to Christ. We should be relating with people who are not Christians, who are not identified with Christ. It's the missional mandate of Christ Himself. He sent the apostles to be light into the world. But hear this. Our closest relationships, the people that we confide in, must be in Christ. We're in relationship. Our closest relationships are going need to be Christians. Because of, we see the results here, the compromise. doesn't mean that you, ex- I'm not saying build a wall and exclude yourself from people that are non-Christians. There are many, many contexts where we should be around unbelievers, where we should be around people that do not profess Christ. But our closest personal relationships should be followers of Jesus. And I think those are two things that we can pull out of an odd passage like this, where you have Nehemiah beating people up and pulling their hair out. And we can see the severity of which Nehemiah pursued the righteousness of his people, the holiness of his people, to say, hey, you guys have sinned. And the thing was is this, is that this was an agreement that they had already made. Time and time and time again. We see it in God's Word, God's Word directing in this way. And Nehemiah's like, man, you guys keep doing this wrong. What is the matter with you? So they got a beat down. <laughs> I would strongly suggest not doing that. We can understand a clear lesson in Nehemiah's actions. And here's this. He's serious about obedience. And he's serious about sin. He took extreme measures to rid the people of God of sin. To separate them from actions that were separating them from God. He took that very, very seriously. There needed to be a line drawn. We're not doing this. We're God's set apart people. But if we're honest, the the book of Nehemiah kind of leaves us hanging. Nehemiah concludes with just praying to God that, that God will remember him in the judgment. And we will look upon him with favor. But we're left just kind of hanging. Things are they're unresolved. Nehemiah is basically the last historical narrative that we have in the Old Testament. We have prophets, but as far as history goes, I mean, this is it. The next scene that we have in Scripture is 
the arrival of Christ. And so we're kind of left, like, what's going on here? The book has had many lessons in and of itself. The, the teachings are clear. They're incredibly applicable. I mean, do you guys agree with that? I think there's been some great things that we've been able to draw from this book that's been useful for us. But here's the bottom line. The Old Testament, in a sense, it leaves us longing. It leaves us longing for this. It leaves us longing for a happy ending. We long for a happy ending. I mean, we feel it in here today, don't we? As we pray for people who are suffering from cancer, as we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who are having heart problems and surgeries, as we pray for relational issues, as we pray for kids who have gone astray, we feel like, man, we really just long for things to be set right. We long for a happy ending. Isn't it just like the, the truth of God's word to leave us with Nehemiah beating people up and pulling out their hair? It points to the severity of sin and the means by which God will and has dealt with this issue. I think it, it points to the justice of God that this is a very serious issue. Sin should not be taken lightly. Because again, we long for that happy ending. But in order to get that to that happy ending, we have to deal with sin. The justice of God must be fulfilled. You see, there are very, there's varying attributes of God. He is love. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And in order for God to be God, He needs to be all of those things. He's not just love. He's not just justice. He is all those things. And so He has to be true to those things. And the reason we long for the happy ending is because we know that sin needs to be dealt with. We can feel that. Even a person who is not in Christ understands there's something inherently wrong. There's just something wrong. We can see it in the creation. We can see it in disaster upon disaster, natural disasters, the earth moving, earthquakes. We see it with tornadoes ripping through the Midwest and hopefully never having one in Kentucky while I live here. We see it in hurricanes as they shred the East Coast. We see it in War between human beings. We see it in sin. We see it in homelessness and people without homes living out in the cold while we enjoy a warm home. There's just something that's not right. It's sin. But here's the good news. We long for a happy ending and we're seeing that unveiled through Jesus Christ. First, it's unveiled here at the cross and the resurrection. At the cross and the resurrection. We long for a happy ending and we see it in the gruesomeness of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection, of new life, of Christ defeating death in the grave. Paul says this in Romans 8, 1-4. says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an Amen. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free. Church, do you long for a happy ending? We have it in Christ. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God sent His Son to do what we could not do. He is perfect. And so He condemned sin in the flesh. He dealt with sin because He placed it upon Christ at the cross in His flesh. Not sinful, perfect. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in who? In us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has given you His Holy Spirit inside of you. If you place your faith and trust into the work of Christ, we see the wrath of God being poured out in history at one point when Jesus was stripped bare, when He was beaten, when His flesh was ripped from His bones, when He was laid on a cross and He had nails driven into His hands and His blood was spilled for you because He loves you. And we long for that happy ending. We have it in Christ Jesus. That in His perfection, He desires you. A relationship with you. God has ushered in His kingdom through the work of Christ. He has brought about salvation to all people who will place their faith and trust in Him through the power of the Gospel. It's the power of preaching Christ and Christ crucified. May we never depart from this message. May we never depart from this message for feel good. For ten steps to a better life or a better marriage. Here's the answer. Jesus. The Gospel is all we need. To hear time and time again how much Jesus loved you to awaken with us week after week His Spirit within us to stir within us a life of transformation. As a response to the Gospel, we are more loving husbands. We are more loving wives. We are more generous people. We are more loving to the community around us. We are willing to give everything because Christ has given us everything. He has given us His Holy Spirit. His empowering spirit. It's the beauty of such a horrific execution as the cross was. Love came down and set us free from sin by becoming our curse, by bearing our sin on the cross. The happy ending begins in the gruesome death of our Savior and His glorious resurrection from the dead. The law could not save the people. We witness its redemptive purpose in history, which was to show us our iniquity before God. The law shows us how great God is and how sinful we are. It shows us our imperfection, and it shows us this, that we need the perfection of another, and that other person is who? It's Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that Jesus completed the work of the law that we could not accomplish. Jesus gives us His completed work through faith in His work. 
through us humbly stating this, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. I need you. He doesn't leave us fumbling through life, but He gives us the power of the Spirit to live a transformed and renewed life. The same power of the resurrection, the power that brought Christ back to life, given to you as a free gift, empowering you to live life that is truly life, guiding you towards Christ's likeness, and sustaining you when your flesh so desires to turn away from God's love. You see, here's the difference between the Israelites and us. It's the power of the Spirit. You see, we want to look at the Israelites and say, I can relate to that. They're disobedient, and I'm disobedient too. Here's the thing. You have the Spirit of God living with inside of you. We've got to be careful with that excuse sometimes. Even Peter. We look at Peter, and man, I can relate to Peter. He's such a fool. And yet, until the day of Pentecost... Peter is traveling through life without the Holy Spirit. But at that day, the Spirit is poured out upon him. And what is he? He stands boldly and he proclaims the gospel. And the power of Spirit comes upon those people. And they are raised to new life in Christ. Church, you have that power within you. And we cannot feel defeated. We don't need to relate to disobedience because we have the power of obedience within us through the power of the Spirit. But we don't have to fear remaining in the white-knuckle world that we now live in. A world fallen and broken. Whether we, whether we have this, we have this word within us. We have hope. We have hope. Even though God's kingdom is broken into history through the life of Jesus Christ, we have greater hope that all things will finally be made new. This is not it, church. This isn't it. The hope is this. The return of Jesus Christ. His second coming that He has promised. We long for a happy ending and we have that at the return of Christ. We have it ushered in through His crucifixion and His resurrection. We're seeing life break into history but we have the consummation of all of that at the return of Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. God's Word says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will what? Be with the Lord forever. I love this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Here's the encouragement. Jesus is coming back, and if you are in Christ, you will be unified with Him physically forever. That body that you have that's broken and messed up and busted, made new. Perfect. Glorified. The sin that you struggle with day in and day out, repenting and weeping over constantly, taken away, gone. Just imagine. Imagine living in a world like that. Knees aren't popping when you get out of bed. Your back's not stuck and you're not walking around like this all the time. What a glorious hope that we have. That the person who died and rose from the dead, did you hear that? The person, Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, has said this, that he is returning to consummate the work that was ushered in through his perfect life. Death and his resurrection. The kingdom of God completed upon the return of Christ. That's our great hope. That Jesus has broken into history. That he is saving people through the work of the church. And that he promises this. It's only getting better. It's only going to get better. Because I'm coming back. The second coming of Christ should stir within us no agitation, no fear, but only this, hope. And this hope affects us in all things. Paul says here, you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. This is going to sound morbid, but one of my favorite things to do is to lead a memorial for someone who was in Christ who has died. Because I get to say these words. You do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Because you will be united with your brother or sister one day. We know that there's something better than this. Passion is a, is a music group. I love some of the music that they put out. I was listening to this song called Ever Almighty this past week. It says these words at the end. It says, fear doesn't get to sit on your throne. No, you won't share your glory. Church, we have that this morning. Fear doesn't get to sit on the throne of God. God is sitting on the throne and we have great hope in Him, in His glory, in His promises. Lift your heads up in the midst of whatever you're going through. Lift your eyes up to the glory of Christ and the hope that we have within Him. That this will fade and that Christ will return back into history and that all things will be made new. Don't let fear sit on the throne of God. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Hold strong to the promises of God. He has given you the gift of life. I want to encourage you to hold fast to that gift in the dark times. Hold fast to that in, in a world that can at times be seemingly mad. Hold fast to that in times of suffering. Hope. Our hope is greater than the greatest fear because our hope rests in the promises of God and we find those promises here in the Word of God. Amen.